listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Hello, I am Daria Brown and back this week with Dr. Joshua Fader, child and family psychiatrist in Solana Beach, California. He is a returning guest. We did a podcast on autism and medication a few years back, and this is going to be part two because there is now a child medication fact book for psychiatric practice, the second edition that just came out. We're going to talk that through. Welcome, Dr. Fader. Well, thanks so much, Daria, for having me again. It's always good to be here. I love having you. Dr. Fader has conducted neutral, non-industry-based pharmaceutical research funded by the NIH. He's the editor-in-chief of the Carla Child Psychiatry Report, a non-pharma and transparency-based newsletter and continuing education vehicle for child psychiatrists. And he's an adjunct faculty with the Fielding Graduate University in the Child and Infant Development PhD program, where he also heads up the Infant and Early Childhood Development Research Incubator, which we did a podcast on, and we will eventually have to follow up on that one as well, Dr. Fader. <laughs> and his latest role is the Medical Director of Positive Development, which we also did a podcast on. So we are now updating the information from that old podcast that we did on autism and medication. A lot of the information in that podcast, I assume it's all still accurate, but tell us about this new fact book, Dr. Fader. I, I'm so excited to be back here, Daria. Um, so the thing about this book compared to the one that came out a few years ago is especially when it comes to autism, we've just changed the whole thing. So as you probably know, in medicine, you have to call something a disorder and give it a treatment, but we don't like that, right? We think of autism as neurodiversity, right? My dad, my son, me a little bit, uh, maybe, maybe a lot, depending on who you ask. Um, we don't think of ourselves as a disorder. We think of ourselves as neurodiverse. And um, so we want support. We don't want treatment. So we changed all the writing in it so that autism, autism spectrum disorder is banned from the book. We just say autism. And we don't use the T word treatment when it comes to autism. We just say support. Uh, there are other things in there that are disorders. Depression, not good. OCD, I get it. ADHD, I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> that may be the next one that falls to uh, more of a neurodiverse kind of approach. It probably should, but I couldn't get that past the public. Actually, Dr. Fader, um, Dr. Ned Hallowell calls it VAST. And I forget what that stands for, but I did a podcast on that with Maude LaRue about ADHD, a VAST topic. And so he's sort of been pushing for that as well. <laughs> yes, Hallowell's great. I did a couple podcasts uh, a few years ago. Our Carlat podcast, by the way, we're up to almost 3 million downloads. It's just crazy. But um, I'll put I a link to that in the blog post for people uh, watching sure, and listening. Sure. There'll be a link to um, it. But, but this, is a, this is a good story because I interviewed Ned Hallowell and Russ Barkley around the same time a couple of years ago for one of my uh, issues of the Carlat child psychiatry report. And Hallowell is doctor happy. He's like, how can you figure out? How can you like, you know, partner with the right, you know, spouse or significant other so that it all works. And Barkley was like, Dr. Doom is like, you know, if you don't treat this, you're going to have a higher likelihood of obesity and diabetes and hypertension. And your lifespan is going to be like, 
you know, seven to 13 years shorter, you know, something like that. Um, so that was, it, it, the contrast was just incredible. This is ADHD. But again, you know, we're talking about diversity that impacts quality of life. And it's true for autism as well. And getting back to medication, the other thing that we did in this uh, new book, this new edition, is we put treatment algorithms in there. So the, the idea there is to give the prescribing clinicians, whether it's doctors or nurse practitioners or you know whoever's doing that, um, an idea of what might be a good path to follow. It's not meant to be a cookbook, everybody's different, um, but what I didn't want people doing is jumping right to the FDA approved medications for irritability and autism. Yeah, so most people, most autistic people have some sort of irritability at times, you know? It's hard to be an octagonal peg trying to fit into round holes all day. Um, but if you go to a doctor and you say, well, doc, help me, all they have that's sort of, you know, legally marketable for, for that problem, and there's all kinds of irritability and dysregulation out there, is Risperdal or Aripiprazole, and that's what insurance will pay for. And you know what? Sometimes they're amazingly helpful medications, even life-saving sometimes, but the side effects are problematic. I mean, you have neurotoxicity. I mean, you do have brain changes from these medicines over time. Um, and again, they can be life-saving. They can be important. You need to watch for those neurologic changes. We could talk more about that, but they do make those changes. And, and some of those changes could even include catatonia or um, a muscle stiffness, with your body getting really hot called neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which may be associated with catatonia and um, tardive dyskinesia, which is like new weird movements that may or may not go away. You know, that's not good either. Or uh, more commonly weight gain, weight gain that leads to a higher risk of early onset diabetes, hypertension, um, hard on your joints, cosmetically not so good. I mean, those are big problems. And we can do things to try to prevent some of those problems or watch for them, and we certainly should. But can't we do a lot of things before we get there? And that's the point of the algorithm. The algorithm and most of the algorithms in the book start with non-pharmacological things that you can do. In our case, in you know, the case of uh, autism, what we're looking at are sensory and motor difficulties, communication difficulties, maybe spending a lot of time on that. And of course, you, you talk about it all the time on your podcast, Daria you know, developmental, relationship-based intervention approaches. We're using ourselves and our relationships to help people to be calm and connected and in a reasonable flow of meaningful, meaningful interaction that helps you build your problem-solving skills so that you're not as irritable as much of the time. And guess what? Maybe you don't, maybe you don't need those medicines. And even when you're going to the point where you need something to help you out, um, there are supplements that can sometimes be pretty helpful, and there are milder medications that are often helpful. For instance, most uh, people on the spectrum have ADHD symptoms, and guess what? You know, the most recent research shows that ADHD medicines work about as well, just as well, for um, autistic people as they do for non-autistic people for attention and focus, which can help you be a lot less upset, irritable, dysregulated when you can kind of focus on stuff, and the side effect profiles are the same as well. So we used to think that, well, maybe these medicines don't work as well, and um, maybe you have more side effects, but when we actually research it, not true. And so those medicines may actually be helpful. They certainly have side effects. I'm not saying they don't, you have to watch for them, but that's a heck of a lot more manageable 
than, for instance, using the antipsychotic class medications, which have much bigger potential for side effects. So milder medicines and treating co-occurring conditions like depression, anxiety, ADHD, sleep problems, and treating sleep problems, again, you don't have to go to pills first and you shouldn't stick with pills if you can avoid it. So there's just so many things we can do before getting to the antipsychotics. And to me, this book and this algorithm is really our way of telling the medical community there's a different way, there's a new way, and you need to learn about that. So that's what we're doing. I'm, I'm going out proselytizing, <laughs> giving talks wherever I can, uh, not just for book sales. We're going to sell a lot of books. There's no question. People like Carlap books. They they want something that's not pharma. I get that. Um, and we're doing well. But what we really want is we want to change minds about how we support autistic people. So that's 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 my intro. Yes, yes. How do you want to expand on it? Well, I mean, there's a number of, of things. I guess the audience for this is psychiatrists, right? And doctors. Well, the book is, the, for the book, and even for a talk like this, it's prescribers, but it's also parents and families. You want to be a an informed consumer of these medications. Think about a busy prescriber in their office. They're never having enough time. And they want to give you something that's going to work. And actually, if they give you an antipsychotic, a lot of times it works. And so everybody's kind of happy at first, right? But then, you know, once or maybe a year down the road, then you're starting to come in and, you know, this thin little twig of a kid who was calmer is now a much beefier person who's having trouble getting around the playground, uh, not because they're, you know, pacing in circles as much because maybe they're more connected, but... They're not, they don't have the, the stamina because they've gained all this weight, for instance. I mean, that's that's not good. That's not a good outcome. That's not what we're looking for. Um, what we want is for them to be thinking about non-pharmacological ways to do this and other things they can do. Here's the other thing. So as you probably know, and, and maybe, maybe parents know this, they're listening to it especially, nine out of 10 psychotropic um, medication prescriptions don't come from psychiatrists. They come from non-psychiatrists, pediatricians, nurse practitioners, others, right? Um, uh, physicians assistants. Um, and so how do you get the information to them so that they have the, you know, the best tools for um, assessing and, and following up and knowing what to do rather than, again, just listening to the pharmaceutical companies that are marketing, you know, the, the couple medications out there and, and making a lot of money doing it. Um, so there's there's that aspect of it that we really want to get to those prescribers. And if you're a consumer, if you're a parent taking a kid to the pediatrician, pediatrician doesn't necessarily know this stuff. And, you know, you got to kind of be um, what's RPM. Is that what Greenspan used to call it? Really pushy mom or, you know, somebody <laughs> who's kind of saying, look, you know, here's here's this algorithm. And, um, you know, maybe that'll help us. You know, I, I always try to use we language. Dan Siegel tells me that. Use we language even with your doctors and say, maybe we, not you, doctor. You, doctor, do this. They don't like to hear that. But maybe we, maybe we can look at this and maybe that'll help us to find, you know, the safest and best way to work with, with our kid. The American Academy of Pediatrics has recently been launching initiatives recognizing that it's really non-psychiatrists who are doing a lot of prescribing and encouraging pediatricians to get good at doing kind of the basics for depression, anxiety, ADHD, stuff like that. 
Well, I think they also need to be talking about autism um, support as well. I almost used the T word treatment. I stopped myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, so that's interesting. I assume those are American statistics, but it's so different in Canada with public health insurance and, and different things. But still, I imagine that um, anyone who's informing themselves is looking to publications out of the US too. And, and certainly to have something that's not influenced by pharmaceutical industry is a big plus. Um, I wonder, um, you know, it, it's one thing to have a book, but it's another thing to be informed about all the other options. So we still have so many doctors that don't know anything about DIR floor time or developmental approaches, or, you know, they just say, oh, go to ABA because that's what they heard is, is the way to go. Um, I don't, I don't know that we'll solve all of that, but I like your point that parents need to be informed. And even if they have that book or they can look at it in the library and say to the doctor, this new book just came out, it says this and use the we language, like you said, this might help us. Um, what do you think? Can you take a look or something like that? I like that point a lot. Yeah, and I kind of want to underline that um, they also don't know about the different approaches to autism because of the dominance of the traditional uh, ABA approaches. There's been, you know, lots of talk about the naturalistic developmental uh, behavioral approaches that are kinder and gentler. Uh, almost all of those, like Early Start Denver model, are very time limited. Um, so even if you did get that sort of approach, and, and perhaps it is kinder and gentler at times, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't last very long and pe most people kind of go to the, their next phase ends up being traditional ABA because the ABA companies are using that as kind of an entry to their longer term uh, systems. And, and I think it's really important for um, uh, other healthcare professionals who are working with autistic kids and families to know the differences between traditional ABA, the naturalistic developmental behavioral and the um, and the relationship developmental relationship based approaches, if nothing else, because the approach to you know an upset kid is so radically different, right? I mean, we lean into somebody who's upset. We might talk softly. We might empathize with some real intensity. That oh my goodness, you really are upset. Whereas the traditional behaviorists, they they I think they psychologically abandon the kids. They ignore to try to get them to not do that anymore. And it works. Um, it, it definitely cows people into not responding. They give up trying to get help. But to me, that's not psychologically healthy. That's neglect and abandonment emotionally. And that doesn't help you become a problem solver. That just teaches you, if nothing else, to comply to whatever people tell you to do, which is not very safe as far as I'm concerned. I'd rather have someone feisty um, and, um, and, you know, try to negotiate uh, with me rather than somebody who just says, uh, you know, gives up fighting and, and never fights back. I think that's not healthy. <laughs> right, right. And based on what Dr. Fader was just saying, I will refer people in the blog post to yet another podcast we did, uh, the move towards developmental approaches, where we outlined all of that, um, that, uh, what do you what do you call it? um not timeline not spectrum but whatever continuum from uh relationship based to behavioral 
Well, we could talk more about pills if you want, if we're getting there, if we don't want to talk about as much developmental stuff and the milder things that people can think about and some of the ins and outs, if you're, would that be fun? Yes. This is a medication podcast and, and lots of parents want to know about it. And you're the only person I've talked to about medication. So give it to us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, let me, um, let me do this. Um, I, I'm going to, because I can't, I think for, um, uh, like copyright purposes, I can't give you the algorithm to share. You gotta gotta buy the book, unfortunately. But I can talk you through it and talk about some of the um, different um, approaches that are on there. So I'm gonna just uh, call it up on my own screen that you can't see. So that I'm using it as a as a go by um, while we're uh, while we're doing this. And that way you'll have all the information on the podcast without me breaking any. And and as, as you're going through this, yeah. give us a scenario, like what would a family come to the doctor saying that would then require medication? Absolutely. So, so let's talk a little bit about some of these co-occurring conditions, right? So sleep difficulties, anxiety, um, depression, ADHD, stuff like that. Um, and um, so let, let's talk about sleep. Um, when we're trying to help, well, first of all, there's an assessment phase. You really have to try to understand all the different things. Oh my God, sleep itself could be an entire podcast, right? Or an entire course. Um, but the short version is that a lot of our kids don't sleep very well, right? And we try to figure out, so what are the things that are, you know, getting in the way? What's upsetting them? Is it that they're getting too much um, blue light from electronic screens? Um, are they not getting enough exercise during the day? Um, are they, you know, scared? Are they frightened at night? You know, what's going on? So really trying to understand, you know, all the things that are happening that might be getting in the way of sleep, like really important. And you probably heard about sleep hygiene, being um, kind of an important thing for all of us to do, like putting the screens away a couple hours before bed, getting proper exercise, but not in the couple hours right before bed because it stirs you up, steering clear of uh, foods that might um, get you amped up. So for some people, it's caffeine and caffeinated beverages. Um, a lot of people talk about salicylate cont containing foods like um purple grapes and red apples. And you can look it up. It's like the Feingold diet, but those kinds of things can sometimes stir people up. So figuring out, you know, those kinds of things are sleep hygiene ideas, right? But if you give people a sleep hygiene sheet, most, most families know this stuff already. And the research that we have shows that in everybody, including, you know, autistic kids and their families, if you give them those lists, it doesn't go anywhere. Nothing happens. So you actually have to take the time to break down what bedtime is like and think about, you know, what's happening then and work on the problems bit by bit. Who, who's, um, uh, who, who's having trouble with you going to sleep? Maybe it's one of the parents who never gets to see you because they're at work a lot and they're kind of keeping the kid up to play with them, but maybe it's a little too late and the kid's kind of overcharged or, you know, there's all kinds of things that can happen. So you've got these sleep hygiene ideas and then you have to really problem solve each of them. Now there is a, I, I hate to use the B word, but there is a behavioral method that does work in autistic kids um, as well as, you know, neurotypical kids and families called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That is not traditional ABA. It's uh, just a way of taking each of those sleep hygiene things 
and kind of thinking a lot about it. And in our DIR world, basically what we do could be similar. Stanley Greenspan always said that if you talked about DIR in ABA terms, the ABA people would understand. I, I don't know if that's true, but if you talk about cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in DIR terms, it makes sense to us. So for instance, somebody who's really having trouble um, getting to sleep, they're really scared, for instance, they want to sleep, they want you to sleep with them. You can, you know, very gently engage with them and, you know, play with them and help them settle down next to them. And then over time, very, very gradually, you can um, uh, get yourself a little bit further and further away so that they're able to track you further away. Think about visual motor um, kinds of understanding of where you are. So first they want you very close and then they're more comfortable knowing where you are at a distance. And then later, even knowing who you are inside of themselves when they go to sleep, which is kind of a goal when you have to go and do other things in the evening. And they're they, and you need them to kind of sleep um, by themselves for the night. So there are ways to do that that are fully within our DIR framework. Well, what if what if you did want to use a supplement or something? A lot of people try melatonin. They come to me. They say the melatonin didn't work. And a lot of times they're using a lot of melatonin, like ten to fifteen milligrams. Most of the time, you only need one to three milligrams, but you got to give it about an hour and a half before you expect somebody to go to sleep. If you give it to them you know, right before bed, it takes a long time to kick in. And most of those um, melatonin supplements are short acting. They, they they peter out after about uh, four hours. So if you wake up in the middle of the night naturally, which many of us do, we have sleep cycles, we go in and out of, um, you know, sleep phases uh, up to light sleep or even awake for a few minutes, well, then it's not there anymore. And then you may be wandering into your parents' bedroom and, uh, and doing that. We absolutely don't want people using the usual sleep medicines. I hate those things. The Z drugs, we call them, Zolipidem, Ambien, and others. Um, I, I don't think they're very good for most adults. Um, and you know, the side effect that I worry most about is people waking up while they're on them and doing whatever their emotions tell them to do without any judgment, whether that's bake cookies or hurt yourself. And it is not, I just hate those. And they're not a they're not FDA approved for marketing for kids. They shouldn't be used. Other people want to use mild medicines like Benadryl. And there are some kids who need a mild medicine sometimes to get to sleep. But long-term Benadryl, we worry about memory problems in later life. So not crazy about that either. For any medicine that you end up using to help supplement for sleep, if you can get someone on a good sleeping path, try to reduce and discontinue it very gradually once you're in a decent sleeping pattern so that maybe you don't have to use it. Occasionally, kids end up on antipsychotics, and there are some ones that are sedating that we end up using, but we don't like to do that. Other medicines that you might hear about for sleep, clonidine is a big one that pediatricians will use. It's an old high blood pressure medicine that's pretty sedating. It's pretty safe, actually. <clears throat> In high doses, um, you could be dizzy, I suppose, but most kids don't get dizzy. If you're on it on an ongoing basis for irritability, and we can use it for that, and then you suddenly stop it, your blood pressure might suddenly go up more. But again, in most of kids um, and even teens, it's not that big a deal. Um, and it's pretty, pretty useful stuff. Um, so clonidine, you might hear about guanfacine, its cousin is another one that we might. And that's just sleep that we've talked about. If you're talking about depression, um, you know, a lot of kids are having difficulty because the world is a tough place and it kind of wears you down and you don't feel very good about yourself. 
or about the world around you or about your future. And that is not good. Um, and sometimes kids feel like life isn't worth it anymore. And we need to be screening people for suicidality. Well, are there screens for suicidality for autistic kids? There's not a lot of research on it. The most commonly used suicide screen in children and adolescents, at least in the US, is the Columbia um, Suicide Screening Scale, I think it's called, CSSS. Um, pretty, pretty long um, and kind of complex uh, verbally. So for a lot of the our kids, um, we kind of want to simplify the language and make it more concrete. It's easier with another one called the ASQ. So you can get those, you can get it online. Actually, the book has these screens um, kind of referenced in it. Um, so you want to be screening for that. And then treating, treating depression, well, again, you're back to non-pharmacological things. You're back to, well, DIR, calm, connected, meaningful flow of interaction, being heard, being seen, being felt. That's what is, you know, kind of the mainstay of what we try to do. Physical activity is so helpful, keeping people active and engaged during the day and meaningful um, activities and, um, and, and ones that work your body, um, you know, things like that. We tend when we're upset to want to eat more fat and salt and um, sugar. And so trying to keep to, you know, a little bit more protein, a little bit less of a, you know, um, uh, of the simple sugars, getting more to complex carbohydrates. Um, so we want to do all those kinds of things first. And then if you're going to use a potion, well, what's the potion you're going to use? I'm not a super fan of St. John's Ward and Sammy. I mean, those do work for depression sometimes, but the pill-to-pill -pill variability is so big in these supplements that it's hard to rely on that. And um, you, you worry that you might get some side effects like you might with an antidepressant because you can get those. And we'll talk about antidepressants in a minute. But Sorry, what do you mean by pill-to-pill -pill variability? Like oh. each pill might not have the same dose? And not even the same stuff in it. There's no oversight on these. Um, so and it's a real problem. Yeah. yeah. So um, so the ingredients are, it's hard to trust. Now there, okay. you know, sometimes people have, you know, trusted sources of herbal uh, supplements and okay. Uh, but, um, but, but there's no real oversight on that. And when you see studies of people examining, opening up the pills and finding out how many milligrams of St. John's word is in the pill, it really varies. Um, so it's, it's, it's problematic. And for some supplements, melatonin, it's also not monitored, but at least it's not as big a deal, um, sort of, if, if you don't get the, um, same amount in there with something like St. John's wort, which is basically acting like a SSRI antidepressant, that's a bigger deal. That's a problem. And, and it's got a short half-life. So you're taking it two or three times a day. Um, and so you get, you, you these wildly different, um, levels. Um, so that, that's a problem. Sammy is more like a supplement that just helps you create more serotonin, which could be good. But again, there's there's the same variability in, in that. Um, when you get to medications like antidepressants, you know, we could do a whole thing on antidepressants, right? But um, the bottom line is that there are a couple SSRIs that actually have the, the studies that show that they sometimes help. Not super reliably, not like an anxiety. And the same antidepressants, whether it's anxiety or depression, have have the research, but think think about anxiety as being more responsive to these medicines. Fluoxetine, Prozac, been out since '89, actually pretty pretty robust for anxiety problems. Um, maybe not as reliable for depression, but it's got the best evidence 
of any antidepressant. Sertraline or Zoloft is another one. And then whether you use S-Citalopram, Lexapro, or a Citalopram, Celexa, sort of different literature on what's uh, what might work. And, and the FDA approvals are a little bit different between depression and anxiety for those. But um, so to get insurance to pay for it. But um, uh, but those are kind of on, on the list as well. Every other antidepressant doesn't really have good research. Um, all antidepressants have about a 1% chance of people having new suicidal thinking. So you have to watch for that. Um, but most of the time, kids who are even feeling suicidal on antidepressants, they feel better and the suicidality goes away, which is amazing and wonderful. Um, the only other medicine that's really great at making suicidality go away in people with mood problems is lithium, but that's a lot more complicated. We're not going to talk about that today. And anxiety, I kind of mentioned along with depression, but for both of those, therapy works and, um, and cognitive therapy also works as well as uh, DIR not as, I mean, in addition to DIR. So both approaches can be helpful. It depends a little bit on the family, the child, um, how much you're able to use, um, you know, uh, speech uh, for some kids and, and complex ideas. DIR does not require complex abstract, um, you know, speaking. Um, so you can, there's a lot more breadth and mileage you can get out of DIR. Um, so other, and then we mentioned ADHD earlier. Um, so we've kind of talked about some of the co-occurring conditions, but then, you know, we haven't talked as much yet about the real um, importance of good sensory integration, occupational therapy approaches, and just the whole idea that sensory experience impacts your entire life for all of us. And so paying attention to that can help you just feel better, whether you're depressed, anxious, or have ADHD, but just, you know, autistic um, you know, neurodiversity um, and just feeling uncomfortable in the world, ways that you can feel more comfortable uh, uh, and also improve the, the, the breadth of your level of comfort. So a DIR sensory approach includes doing meaningful things that might not be as comfortable, but you're improving your, uh, the things that you can tolerate, whether it's with food and feeding or whether it's just the, the sticky stuff that's on my desk or, or or just being out in different kinds of weather that may be more, um, you know, a little bit harder, but because you're doing something that's really fun, you're able to tolerate it a little bit more and kind of get used to it. And then it's not such a bad thing. Um, and then, you know, how can you not talk a lot about social communication when we're talking about uh, autistic diversity? And so finding people who really understand it can coach you as a parent uh, to be able to, um hear and understand your child um, better, hear their intent, understand their intent, catalog their intent, whether it's what they're showing on their face or not showing um, and um, what, they're, what, they're, what their behavior is communicating. And so you can communicate with them in a shared way. Um, you know, after that, we get to the level of the heavier um, medications to a degree. So you know, uh, we've, we've talked about a lot of these, but we haven't talked yet about low dose naltrexone. So let's, let's do that. Trexone. I'm just wondering who, who makes up all these medication names? <laughs> They're a mouthful. I know they are a mouthful. Marketing people. <laughs> they make the trade names. Um, 
so that they can sell more. Now, Trexin, you probably heard about because it's one of the medicines that's being used in the um, kind of opioid uh, pandemic um, or epidemic, um, you know, trying to, to get that naloxone and now Trexone to people uh, so that you can reverse and maintain the reversal of an opioid um, overdose. So what are we talking about opioid systems when we're talking about autistic kids? Um, you know, the, the quick version of that is um, there have been some thoughts, theoretical, never really proven, that um, there may be some differences in the opioid systems of autistic individuals that have something to do with them being a little bit um, kind of less uh, responsive in some ways uh, to the world around them. I'm not sure, you know, what that means as, as if they have an endogenous opioid um, event going on. Maybe some people talk about leaky gut and, you know, what you eat and maybe gluten doing it. But, but again, those are theories that I, in my mind, haven't been proved. Um, sort of creating endogenous opioids that numb you and naloxone or naltrexone reversing that. Um, may, maybe, I, I don't know. But what I do know is that very low dose naltrexone, usual doses when we're um, using it for other purposes, like reducing craving for alcohol are 50, 100 milligrams. But we're talking about like three to five milligrams or maybe even less made up by, by a compounding pharmacy. Some people feel a lot better and it's pretty safe. In the, in the higher doses, we do some liver function testing, but for the most part, um, you, um, uh, you feel better, people feel better. So I have a, a lot of people who are on low dose naltrexone um, and we're not worried about their liver too much. Propranolol is another medication you've probably heard about if you've been following the literature on uh, autism and, um, and medications. Propranolol is an old high blood pressure medicine, different from the central alpha agonist clonidine or guanfacine. It's sort of a different mechanism, but it basically keeps your heart from racing. That's what propranolol does. So instead of being anxious, like before giving a speech, we give these for like uh, performance anxiety, people can take propranolol, their heart isn't racing, they give their speech, they're great. But a lot of autistic kids actually do better too. And, and we know that a lot of our kids are sitting there, they, they're not showing on their face that they're upset, but they are. And, um, and then maybe their heart's racing, but we don't see it. If we had sensory monitors, that's a talk for another time. We could be knowing that they're kind of really stirred up inside um, but when you don't know it, and then they finally get overwhelmed and they, you know, get very demonstrative in their upset, well, then that's a, that's a whole other thing. But propranolol can sometimes prevent that from happening. Pretty safe stuff. If you have asthma, it might make your asthma worse. You have to watch for that. If you're an athlete, it might make it harder to get your heart rate up because it keeps your heart rate from going up to meet the needs of exercise. So that's a problem. But for the most part, people do pretty well on that. Well, what if they're not doing well on any of these things and you really still need to do another uh, medication level, another level of the uh, game here um, is anti-convulsants, anti-epileptic drugs, same, same thing. And so we think about Neurontin, Gabapentin, Oxcarbazepine, Trileptol, Depakote, Valproate, and Topiramate, Topamax. And they're all very different medications. Neurontin, as far as I can tell, it's pretty safe stuff. The hard part is knowing how much you need. It does help anxiety itself a little bit, and some people are less irritable. Um, but you can use between 100 and 3,600 milligrams, and finding what's the right dose is kind of challenging. Um, rarely people get addicted to it, but for the most part, 
not a problem. Now, I, I should have mentioned this before. If you have a seizure disorder, you need to be treating that. And so some of kids are already on uh, anti-convulsant medications. Our kids tend to have a spike in terms of the age range in middle childhood and adolescence where seizures seem to be most prominent. But but a lot of our kids, we end up getting a 24-hour EEG in case that there's underlying seizure activity we weren't aware of that we might need to treat with any of these. Anyway, so gabapentin, neurontin's one. When somebody's anxious, people think about that. Pretty safe stuff, just hard to find the dose. Maybe you can get hooked on it. I've seen that, but otherwise it's pretty safe. Oxcarbazepine, trileptol. Um, also, we think pretty safe, although you kind of have to watch a little bit for uh, blood chemistries. You can get what we call a metabolic acidosis. So if somebody's sick and they're on trileptol, you got to get some blood tests and see how they're doing. The main thing with trileptol is, again, finding the right dose. But more than that, people get a little clumsy on it. So uh, the thing I worry about is people kind of tripping and falling and you know, getting bruised. Um, so that's a thing. Valproate, Depakote. A lot of our kids are on Depakote because it's a really good anticonvulsant. The other thing is if you've got somebody who's aggressive and has ADHD, well, the first thing is to use stimulant medications because that like 60 to 80% of the time, if you try a stimulant or try a second kind of stimulant, like Ritalin, because it has fewer side effects usually, and then like the Adderall type, you know, dextroamphetamine. So from methylphenidate to dextroamphetamine, you try those. If those don't work, then the go-to medicines are Depakote and Risperdal. Risperdal we talk about at the end here among the antipsychotics. But, um, but Depakote actually works pretty well for aggression. You have to watch blood levels. You have to watch liver function. It's a little bit tricky, but that would be next level before you even get to an antipsychotic for a very dysregulated autistic individual. Um, and then Topiramate, Topamax, uh, nicknamed Dopamax because um, sometimes it makes word finding difficult. It, it's hard on your cognition uh, if you go up too quickly on it. Um, it's one of the few medicines in uh, psychopharmacology that you tend to lose weight more than gain weight. So that's kind of helpful, actually. And it might even help prevent weight gain with the antipsychotics. So sometimes we give them together. Um, tends to help irritability with a lot of kids. Um, like naltrexone, um, it reduces craving for like alcohol, stuff like that. Sort of interesting in some of our older people. Um, but Topamax, another, another possible option. When all that fails, that's when you start thinking about antipsychotics, when you've got intractable irritability and aggression, um, when it's dangerous, um, that's when you think about antipsychotics. And at that point, you think about body mass index. Now, body mass index, really, um, that's like weight and height, and you do a calculation, you can look it up on the internet. Body mass index has been misused in healthcare. It was created by people, actuarial people, a long time ago. It has nothing to do with the state of your health. Your BMI has zero, zero to do with whether you have high blood pressure or diabetes or something. But people misuse it. They use it as a cutoff for all kinds of things, like whether you're going to you know, be able to advance in the military or whether you're going to get to be on a sports team or things like that. But they say misuse, it is fatism as far as I'm concerned and wrong. However, with the use of antipsychotic medications, it can help guide you to which ones you use. Now, here's a caveat. Everything I've talked about so far and everything I'm going to talk about for the next couple of minutes, except for Risperdal and Aripiprazole, is off-label. It's not FDA approved for marketing, right? And here's another one. If you have a very low BMI, below 25, 
Risperdal or aripiprazole may well be the best go-tos because they have the best research. But you want to think about using them with another medicine called metformin, which is like an anti-diabetes medicine, which can help reduce the chances of weight gain. Really important. If you're between 25 and 30 BMI, well, then you might try using lorazodone or zoprazodone. So those are antipsychotics that might work, not as reliable as risperdal or piperazole, but they don't put weight on you for the most part. They almost never do. So that's kind of cool. You do have to look at EKGs and things like that, especially with zoprazodone, although the evidence for it really being a problem is uh, thin, but, um, but it's probably worth looking at. And if you don't do that, then risperdal or piperazole with metformin is your other the main option at this level of uh, the algorithm. If you're above 30 in a BMI, that's you know fairly heavy, then you, again, you wanna think about lorazodone or zoprazodone. If you are thinking about risperdal or aripiprazole, that's when you're thinking about these very new medicines, the GLP-1 agonists. That's that shot that makes your appetite go away. Um, and so, you know, Ozempic, Rebelsis is the other one, it's an oral pill. Getting those paid for, they're really expensive, and getting them paid for may be a problem uh, because, you know, just might be they're not approved for kids, more for adults. But you want to try to forestall some of that weight gain, and and these are the ways to do that. Still irritable, you got to be thinking, is this catatonia? And you might discontinue those antipsychotics and then think about treating for catatonia. It's a whole other talk. Um, you might try a different um, antipsychotic as well. You might try other combinations. Whatever you do, use the non-pharmacological approaches first whenever possible to help reduce the use of medication. And if you're using antidepressants, you know, earlier on in this algorithm, remember to talk about potential side effects, including the rare but possible suicidal thinking and also behavioral activation. Sometimes people get bouncy. With those antipsychotics, you gotta watch weight. You gotta check labs for lipids for sugar uh, metabolism. And you need to do that at baseline 12 weeks in and every year or maybe sooner, depending what's going on and screen for new abnormal involuntary movements about every six months or sooner if you need to and consider getting an EKG at baseline um, and maybe annually as well. For all these medicines, if you're stable for three to six months, Think about gradually discontinuing the medication. Yes, I know some of our kids get bigger and then they seem to grow out of the medicine and we raise the dose. I get that. But a lot of times they don't. And a lot of times if you're doing a uh, um, really well with your developmental approaches and your other things that you're doing that are non-pharmacological, you can relieve people of the burden of being on these medications. And they may be helping for a time, but they don't necessarily help forever. So that's kind of my summary of the algorithm. You've been good about not interrupting me. Maybe you got another question or two before we sign off for today, Daria. Well, I did until you answered it. So you addressed it. You said, um, really consider using the non-pharmacological approach first before considering meds, because I'm thinking of parents listening and saying, oh, my, my kid gets aggressive. Maybe I should be looking at this meds. Well, if your child's aggressive because something happened that caused them to feel aggressive, that's not a reason to go on medication. Um, you're talking about severe problematic behavior that is continuing and ongoing that you've tried other things for and nothing seems to be working and you're looking for solutions. I, I'm 
you're leaning more towards that than the occasional meltdown. I'll give you an apocryphal story. So story from earlier in my practice, you know, I see people who are on a whole pile of pills. A lot of times they come to me, they're on all these medications. Uh, large kid comes to me, aggressive spitting. It's a big problem. I may have talked about this before in another talk we've given. And, um, and he's on a lot of medicine and it's not working. Oh, Dr. Fader, what do we give him to make him better? I look at this kid. I see what he's doing. He's been for about 10 years on his IEP. He's supposed to sort silverware. Guess what? He doesn't want to sort silverware. What does he do all the time that they're trying to correct? He's picking trash up off the floor. Like, oh, so we go around my neighborhood. We're walking together. We're picking up trash. We're putting in a bag. We're being, you know, environmentally responsive. We're having fun. We're joking back and forth. He doesn't speak, but we're joking anyway. Well, guess what? We change his job and we take him off a lot of medicines. He's picking up stuff. It's, you know, and he likes doing it. It's not the kind of, for lack of a better word, enslavement that we do for a lot of kids. Oh, you, you need a job. I think, you know, you don't speak. Maybe you should sort silverware and then that'll be a good job. And we'll pay you for that. Maybe a couple pennies. <laughs> we need to start really looking at people, seeing what they like to do and helping them do what they want to do um, and uh, and partnering with them in that, not just, you know, yoking them to some sort of pre-vocational work that somehow we think is the appropriate thing to do. Just ridiculous. Yes. So for that, I'll refer people to all the other podcasts on my website, which um, really give, you know, different approaches to DIR floor time from all different angles and all different issues that come up. Um, but it's always good to have the latest information on medication. Thank you so much, Dr. Fader. It's also so nice to know that you're not bought by the pharmaceutical companies, especially now with all the conspirationists out there that just believe that, you know, everything is just to make money from pharmaceuticals. There are doctors out there who are not um, just pushing pills for money. <laughs> right, right. Yes. I'm going to be doing a three-hour parent class on medications for ICDL sometime. This is 2023. We're recording in March. So sometime, hopefully in June of this year, maybe May or June of this year. So, so watch for that if you're listening to this podcast because uh, I'm really excited to do that because it's going to be, I hope, interactive. So I'll be talking back and forth with parents about their experiences with medications. Although it won't be a clinical uh, treatment program, you can't get diagnosed by uh, Dr. Fader or he won't tell you what to prescribe, but just general educational information. I I'm doing the disclaimer for ICDL. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, ICDL.com slash courses if you want to look out for that course. And I will put the link in the blog post as well. So yeah, that'll be a great uh, a great course for parents that really want this information. Well, so, thank you. Yeah, thank very you. good information. Thank you so much. I will put the information about the book again and, and links to the stuff we talked about on the blog post, affectautism.com. Uh, look for autism and medication. And I'll refer people back to our original podcast where Dr. Fader addressed more why you would want to um, consider medication in the first place. And we went into that more in part one. So we didn't do that in part in part two. But thank you so much, Dr. Fader. Thanks, Daria. Have a great day. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. <laughs>